2: Is that Venus or Jupiter?
3: That that's Jupiter. Venus is you can see Venus. You can walk around the side of the building, but we're on the top of the building, so don't walk near the edge there, Gary.
1: Okay, I'm here. Okay. What's up?
3: Okay, well we're on the top of this building.
1: This better be good because I'm really cold.
3: As I was saying, we're here to test my theory. Now it's a theory that's a little bit anti-Galilean, but it is my theory.
2: You're challenging Galileo's theory of gravity. Yeah, could be flawed. I mean, so I propose
3: to drop off this five-story building, a chicken.
1: I didn't even see him there at your feet.
3: And this wireless microphone to record the sounds. Now, my theory is that Galileo was wrong and that objects don't fall at the same speed. You're predicting... That the chicken will
2: land first. Isn't this a waste for a chicken to fall?
1: You know what? I can answer that. Yes, it is. Seth, you can't drop a live chicken off of a roof.
2: I'm not proposing to.
1: The chicken right there is alive. He's alive, Seth.
2: That's Albert. He just fertilizes the roof garden here. G- get out of the way, Albert. No, nope, I'm going to drop this. You're throwing a nine-piece bucket of Extra Crispy and a microphone off of the roof. I'll see you back inside. No, wait. wait hold it, Gary. Galileo wasn't wrong, Seth. He might have been. Nope. All right. Well, I'm just going to try this anyway.
3: You'll never learn anything without doing the experiment. All right. Ready. On your mark. Get set.
1: Away all
3: poulet.
1: And they landed at the same time.
3: Really? Darn. Looks like Galileo was right. Objects do fall at the same
2: speed. Well, so much for that theory.
1: It wasn't so crazy.
2: Yes, it was. But why not finish the job? There.
1: What did you throw from that bag?
2: Mac and cheese and coleslaw, you know, to make a complete meal. I'm going to go in now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, let's all go back inside.
2: Yeah, all right. By the way, I have another theory.
1: I'm Molly Bentley, and this is Big Picture Science. And I'm Seth Chostak. There are few people as well-versed
3: in the stranger, more mind-bending aspects of the universe than physicist and mathematician Brian Greene.
1: He can discuss string theory and actually know what he's talking about. Yet Brian
3: Greene lies in bed staring at the ceiling at night and asking, well, the question we all
1: ask.
2: What is it all about, I wonder, as I lie in bed here staring at the ceiling at night?
1: But unlike most of us, Brian Greene has answers to that question.
2: It may be about the idea that the universe is made up of tiny, vibrating strings of energy, having maybe four, maybe eleven dimensions.
3: Brian Greene's head was in string physics, theory a while back when he was writing his book, models, The Elegant and Universe. And but and now, relativity.
2: with his new book, The Hidden Reality, when he ponders what it's all one, two, about. Hundreds or infinite numbers of universes. That's right, one universe is not all there is. There could be pocket universes, parallel universes, multiverses, our universe over and over again. Well, good night. <laughs>
1: Wait, multiverses? Parallel universes? Doesn't universe pretty much include everything? We need clarification so we can sleep, Brian Greene. What? Oh, well, theoretical physics would <laughs> the lead us The real to... Brian Greene. Oh.
4: Well, that certainly is the conventional meaning of the word, of meaning that we have given to it for some time. As you say, universe means everything, the whole shebang. So what sense could you possibly give to more than one universe? That would be like more than one everything. And it's somewhat a question of language, and it's motivated by the fact that over the last few decades, there are a number of indications that what we have thought to be everything in the past may actually be a small part of something much bigger. And that much bigger thing, that much wider cosmos, may contain other realms rightly called universes of their own, and that's why we invented this word called multiverse, which would embrace all of those realms, all of those universes.
3: Okay, well, I have to say the idea is certainly appealing. Uh, There have been a lot of books with multiverse in their title because it sounds really sexy, but you said that there are indications that this idea might might have legs. Can you explain what those indications might be?
4: Yeah, sure, definitely. And I think the first thing that's worth stressing is that this is a highly controversial subject, and my book is not actually one of the cheerleading books for the multiverse. I mean, I'm enthusiastic about the possibility because, as you say, it's kind of weird and wonderful, but that's not why I wrote the book. I wrote the book to give the pros and cons of this idea. And for the pros, why we would consider this, well, there are many reasons. Let me just give you one, and it's one concrete way that science has come upon this idea of other universes. We Think of the beginning of our universe in terms of the Big Bang. That's an idea that's been with us for some time now. But as we've tried to understand the Big Bang with greater precision, we have found indications in the mathematical formulation that the Big Bang may not have been a unique event. There may have been many Big Bangs, each giving rise to its own expanding domain, its own expanding realm, The image I like is a cosmic bubble bath with each of these expanding bubbles being an expanding universe. Our universe is just one bubble in the collection. So that is something that comes from inflationary cosmology. There are reasons for taking inflationary cosmology very seriously. And this is one of the potential applications, or I should really say implications, of this theory of cosmology.
3: So this idea, you refer to it as inflation, that's the term, Uh, it's something that happened very early in the Big Bang of our universe, anyhow, when things you know, expanded very, very quickly for a short period of time, that that's something that would be general, that would happen in a lot of cases, it might be happening all the time, there could be Big Bangs going off as we're sitting here having this conversation?
4: Yes, that's exactly right. So there have been many before-hours, although the notion of time is a tricky one in this grander picture, but roughly speaking, yes. There would have been Big Bangs before ours, but there will be and are Big Bangs that take place after ours. You can imagine the whole big multiverse as a big block of Swiss cheese. And all of the holes inside of that block of Swiss cheese would be these different universes that I'm referring to. So it's as if the whole big block is expanding, and within it Additional holes are opening up here and there, and those would be additional universes, new big bangs happening over and over again in this big reality.
3: When you say over and over again, is can you get a number here? I mean, you know, when I think of a parallel universe, I think of one other one. Like, you know, I could have lived parallel lives, and I think of an alternative life. But we're not talking about one other.
4: No, we're talking in this particular example, if you look at the whole expanse, and you're really— required to think about this over the full expanse of time, too. You're talking about an infinite number of universes that make up this reality.
3: Well, that's a a suitably large number. Now, let me just restrict this question to our own universe that's big enough for me to get started. How how big is our universe? I mean, there's a limit to what we can see, of course, because the universe isn't infinitely old, 14 billion years or whatever. But I mean, there's presumably stuff beyond the horizon of our telescopes. How big could our universe be?
4: Well, you're right. There is a limit to how far we can see dictated by how far light in our universe can have traveled since the Big Bang. And you do a little calculation and it's roughly, you'd think it's about 14 billion light years, but... General relativity is a little more subtle than that. It turns out it's about 42 or so billion light years is the distance to which we can see. But there's nothing that says that our universe couldn't go on infinitely far beyond that. We don't know that it does. Our spatial expanse could be finite, but we don't have any proof of that, nor do we have any reason from fundamental theory for that to be singled out as the option. Our universe could, in fact, go on infinitely far, and if it does, then the wild thing is you can use other mathematical analysis, pretty straightforward, in fact, to conclude that far out there in this infinite expanse, there would be copies of you and me and everybody else. That is reality as we know it here in our local neighborhood would have to repeat over and over again if space goes on infinitely far.
3: So we could have our twins, our doppelgangers, as it were, conducting this very same interview, Brian, somewhere else right now, maybe with only a word or a cough that was different?
4: Yeah, and it sounds really kind of far out, but the reasoning behind it is so straightforward that I'll give you a 20-second explanation. You know... If you think about what we are, you and I and everybody else, we're just collections of particles. That's really what our makeup is. Now, the interesting thing is that the number of ways that particles can arrange themselves, the number of distinct ways is actually, in any reason, space finite. It's sort of like if you have a deck of cards and you shuffle the deck, the order of the cards will be different. But if you shuffle the deck enough times, sooner or later, the order of the cards has to repeat Because there are only finitely many different possible orders, and if you shuffle the deck enough times, there aren't enough different orders to go around. It has to repeat. Similarly, if space goes on infinitely far, then the particle arrangements, region by region by region, ultimately have to repeat, too. There aren't enough different arrangements to go around. If the particle arrangement out there repeats the particle arrangement here, that means we would be realized out there in this expanse. As you say, it's even easier for the particle arrangement to almost repeat, which would mean reality would almost be replicated out there. As you say, it could be a cough or a sentence, or maybe I'm interviewing you, you're not interviewing me. These kinds of things would all play out if space goes on infinitely far.
3: So, somewhere out there, if our universe is truly infinite, there's a there's a perfect copy of, um, you know, my kid brother, whatever, and, and maybe some copies of him a little bit better. Surely you can make some estimate of how far away that might be, because I assume we're never going to get in touch with our copies.
4: Yeah, you can do an estimate, and the distance is ridiculously far, as you would expect. It's on the order of 10 to the 10 to the 120 or so, and the units you use hardly matter too. if you want. Think of it as meters. That is so spectacularly huge compared to the actual size of our universe. The observable size is roughly you know, 10 to the 28 meters or so, so we're talking 10 to the 10 to the 120, so this is not anything in any practical terms that we would ever experience. But in terms of our picture of reality, it is somewhat unexpected, I would think that this is what we would have under this assumption, which we don't know is right, but it could be, that space goes on forever.
3: You said that the idea of multiple universes, parallel universes, was motivated by the fact that the physics that uh, describes the Big Bang, inflation theory in particular, uh, you know, could happen all the time, could happen everywhere. It's not necessarily a one-off thing. So that's an argument from physics about why you might have parallel universes. But what about the fact that it might solve this well-known problem, or at least sort of well-known, that our universe seems to be so finely tuned for life? It's just set up so we could be here. Is there some motivation for parallel universes just coming from the fact that we don't want to feel all that special?
4: Well, it is an argument that lends some weight to the utility of having a reality with different universes within it. And that argument, as you note, is basically that we have been stymied in trying to understand certain features of our universe that seem to be finely, finely tuned, as you say, for our form of life. You know, the masses of the particles like electrons and quarks, the strength of gravity, strength of electromagnetic force, and so on, If you fiddle with the actual values of those parameters by too much, then the universe as we know it just goes away. The stars don't shine. It's hard to imagine how our form of life could exist. So people have asked, why is it? Can we explain why these numbers have just the right values to allow stars to shine and planets to form and at least on one planet life to exist? Now we've not been able to answer that question And some say, well, maybe the question needs to be framed in a different context. If there are many, many universes out there, each with different properties, then the particular properties here clearly would not have any fundamental explanation. It would just be an environmental feature of this particular part of that wider cosmos. And then the question as to why we live here and not in one of those other different universes would simply be, we can't exist in those other universes because the conditions aren't right. You know, It's sort of like Kepler worried, why is the Earth 93 million miles from the sun? That's a very special location. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right for our form of life. How did that happen? Who put the Earth in this wonderful, sweet spot for this great environment? Well, he never found a fundamental explanation, and we believe that there isn't one because planets can be at a variety of distances from their host star. The conditions would be very different. If you're very close to your star, it's hot, very far away, it's cold. And we find ourselves on this planet because we couldn't have evolved, and on the other ones, the conditions wouldn't be right. So it's that kind of thinking that allows one to leverage the possibility of a multiverse to answer this question as to why the features of our universe are the way they are.
3: But wouldn't that imply that physics would be different in these other parallel universes, or at least in a lot of them?
4: Yes, and the nice thing is when you go to an approach called string theory, which is a theory that I and many others have been developing for decades now, string theory naturally gives rise to a mechanism whereby these other universes would have different properties. So when you put string theory together with this picture from inflationary cosmology, it gives a highly speculative, very tentative, and highly controversial way of thinking about reality where there are many, many different universes, each with very different properties as dictated by this mechanism within string theory. And we're here and not someplace else for the reasons we said before. We simply couldn't exist in those other universes.
3: But, uh, Brian, I have to say this sounds a little bit, I don't know, not self-serving, but nonetheless, if you're working on string theory, and if it's string theory that allows all these other universes to have their own properties, well, then at least you're working on something that's bigger than the universe, right? Yours is really, in a sense, a theory of everything.
4: Well, I wouldn't say it's a theory of everything, because string theory does not allow everything to happen. On the other hand, I absolutely agree with the gist of your question, which is, this is different from what we anticipated. We wanted to follow Einstein's lead and find a single theory that would describe a single universe, and that universe would be ours. It hasn't turned out that way so far, and that may mean that we have the wrong theory, or it may mean that we need to take seriously where the math has taken us, which is Looking for a single theory of a unique universe is just the wrong picture. That's like looking for a single theory of one planetary distance. That would be wrong.
1: Hang on to your hats, each hat, each one of you, in each universe you inhabit. And we'll return to Seth's conversation with physicist Brian Greene in a moment. It's Big Picture Science.
0: The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to
1: murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy.
5: My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that.
4: I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not
0: mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real-life experience. I have
1: really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate.
1: We return to Seth's discussion with Brian Green about parallel universes.
3: The big question, Brian, could we uh, ever hope to find a parallel universe? I mean, could we prove somehow that this idea is more than just sophisticated science fiction?
4: If we got lucky. So the calculations show in this inflationary version of the multiverse that we were talking about that these different expanding universes, these different bubbles in the bubble bath that I was referring to, they can collide with one another in principle. And if our universe got hit by another there would be an observable consequence, possibly, for us to seek out in the cosmic microwave background radiation the heat left over from the Big Bang. There should be certain patterns in the temperature variations in that heat that would be well explained by that kind of a collision with another universe. And If we can find those temperature variations in the heat in in the sky that we have access to, that could give us this indirect evidence of another universe. That would be an exciting possibility. People are looking for just that kind of signature today.
3: Wasn't there a claim by yep. some scientists in England that they had found just that, such it, a bruise, as it were, from exactly, a collision?
4: Exactly right. And I'm a little bit you know, tentative to even bring that up, because I think the results are not yet solid enough to really rise to the level of believability. But it is exciting for at least the glimmer of evidence to be surfacing. I don't know if it'll stick around or if that evidence will ultimately go away, but it's exciting that, indeed, people who are looking for these things may have found that evidence.
3: We've been talking about a universe that might be infinite in extent or parallel universes that could be almost unlimited in number, but what, what about time? I mean, the Big Bang, 14 billion years ago, but if there are parallel universes, if little Big bangs are going off all the time. Then maybe creation in sort of a meta sense is a lot longer back, maybe infinitely farther back?
4: Yes. Well, there's an interesting theorem that a variety of people proved. Alan Guth, who was actually one of the pioneers of inflationary theory, together with other colleagues, took up a similar question. And they seem to have proven that this inflationary process could not go on infinitely far back. There are some subtleties with that theorem that are worth thinking about, but in rough terms they suggest that it could be infinite toward the future, but it would not be infinite toward the past, which would mean that you might still have to grapple with the question of how it got started in that larger context, even though our universe, its beginning would just be an event in an already existing cosmos you still may have to grapple with how the whole shebang got started.
3: There's something philosophically satisfying in that idea, although I'm not quite sure why. Well, finally, Brian, since our own universe is destined to cool and fade away over the course of time, long time, but anyhow, could could our very distant descendants possibly move to another universe and save their culture somehow?
4: You know, I hear people talk about stuff like that, but... However open-minded I am and however willing I am to consider fairly speculative ideas like string theory, like the possibility of other universes, when we start to talk about how our descendants might jump from one universe to another, for me, with our current level of understanding, that crosses into la-la land. It crosses into a place that, for me, is just too far to speculate for me to say anything intelligible.
3: All right. Well, Brian Greene, thank you so very much for talking with me.
4: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: The Hidden Reality: Parallel Universes and the Deep Laws of the Cosmos is Brian Greene's latest book. He's a physicist and mathematician at Columbia University in New York City.
3: Not far from Columbia, 70 blocks south or so, is the New York Times building. Now, science reporter Dennis Overby began his career with the paper as deputy science editor, but he eventually moved from that desk to a roving job, donning a reporter's hat in 2001. His beat since then has been physics, the cosmos, and undoubtedly, multiple conversations with Brian Green.
1: Dennis Overby has also found time to write books on the universe and on Einstein. All in all, he's been covering the universe for more than 30 years.
3: And what we know of the cosmos is a moving target. So how does a beat reporter get a jump on it all?
1: Dennis, had you been on the science beat 100 years ago, and also covering physics and cosmology, what stories would you have been writing?
6: A hundred years ago, I would be kicking myself because I had not been hanging out in Bern with Albert Einstein. <laughs> it would have been fun to try to write about this uh, this weird guy and uh, and his weird ideas. I mean, the trouble with uh, being in a position like mine is that I'm approached by people all the time who have who are convinced that they're geniuses who are about to overthrow the universe. But without the hindsight of history, you have no idea which one of these people is actually going to be right, and probably most of them are going to be wrong.
1: So to play with this idea a bit, as a science reporter, you may not have heard of him at the time that he was developing these ideas. It might not have been a news story. You wouldn't be chasing after him for an interview at that time.
6: But I'd like to think that I was. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> you I'd like been... to
6: think that I'd heard about the first theory of gravity, uh, the first theory of relativity, and then uh, what a ruckus it had made among physicists, if not anybody else.
1: So the idea of the maybe science- I would have
6: maybe I would have written some long article about him before he ever got famous, and people would have read it and forgotten about it that I'd even <laughs> written it. That happens all the time.
1: What do you think Einstein would have been like to sit down for an interview? You have written about him.
6: I think he would have been very uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> Are you comfortable with this interview?
6: Probably more comfortable than Einstein would be. <laughs>
1: Okay, so that's what some of the science would have been a hundred years ago. A couple other headlines that might have appeared a hundred years ago? Now, reporters famously do not write their own headlines, although they get criticized for the headlines that do appear. Um, what were a couple science headlines that might have appeared, say, a hundred years ago or so?
6: You know, I'm not good on the dates, but, I mean, somewhere back then, uh, Rutherford discovered the atomic nucleus, which, you know, we all know where that led. And somewhere about the same time, of course, quantum theory was being invented, but this just takes it back to Einstein because he was deeply involved in that and he was the only one who believed in it for a long time. So, so I'm sorry I keep going back to Einstein and I get accused of this a lot, but, but he really has become more of a presence now maybe than he even was 50 years ago.
1: So it sounds like atomic science and quantum science, had you been a reporter, say, 100 years ago, they would have been your beat and are they your beat today?
6: Well, embarrassingly, they are. My beat today is sort of vaguely the universe.
1: That's a large beat.
6: It's everything larger than the solar system or smaller than an atom sort of seems to fall in my territory.
1: It could be multiple beats if there are multiple universes, right? Well, it seems
6: like it's, yeah... Yeah, I get all the other universes, too.
1: Well, what's interesting about your job, besides the fact that your job is interesting, given the subjects you are privileged to cover, is that there's a big chunk of your time that's devoted to covering cosmological subjects that just a few years ago, let's say 10 years ago, didn't exist. And one of them is the hunt for extrasolar planets. What's the latest news on this quest?
6: Yeah, certainly. Well, I'm going to generalize that. A little bit, but I'll get back to the the exoplanets. What's really amazing, I mean, so two things have happened in the last 20 years that have really transformed the fields that I cover, which is, and they were both surprised. I mean, one is the discovery of exoplanets, which is only, it's only been 16 years since we knew that there were planets around other stars. I mean, the other thing was the discovery of dark energy, which is, so that's 13 years ago, and that has transformed physics and really transformed what we thought we understood about the universe. Um, so for, as far as exoplanets are concerned, of course now we know there are 500 or so confirmed planets around other stars. The Kepler satellite has now has like a list of like 2,326 possible planets with, with more to come. So there's just an avalanche of other worlds out there and where the astronomers are looking to you know, looking to find an Earth analogue, a planet like the Earth, that things people could live on.
1: As you've covered this story, and reporters, one of their jobs is to choose their words carefully, how have you characterized this story of the of the hunt for <laughs> Earth-like planets and, and perhaps even the hunt for extraterrestrial life?
6: You know, um, I was just at a meeting of exoplanet astronomers and— uh, For field that didn't exist 16 years ago, there were more than 500 people crammed into this auditorium hanging on every word that everybody said. And one of the participants afterwards described it as a love fest. You don't often hear words like that in science.
1: So was it a love fest, you mean, for each other in this united search and maybe a love fest for the planets that might be out there?
6: There was a love fest for the, for the astronomers, for sure, who's, you know, were getting along and being very excited and very collegial. I think the public really is interested in this, I think partly because planets are something that everybody can relate to. I mean, we can easily get a picture in our heads of of a planet. Uh, it's much harder to get a picture in your head of the sorts of things that people are coming up with at the Large Hadron Collider or-
1: The particle um, accelerator, yeah, right?
6: Yeah, the particle accelerator in Geneva, where, which I spend a lot of time also covering.
1: Is is that the picture of you on the New York Times website wearing the hard hat? Is that indeed where you're? Is that you in Geneva?
6: That is me in Geneva at the center of a particle detector, which is about the size of a six story apartment building. And my head is right at the place where protons are now colliding um, at 99.9% the speed of light.
1: Why are you wearing a hard hat?
6: Uh, Well, when I was there, and that picture was taken about three years ago, the physicists were still putting this whole thing together. And they all wore hard hats, and they all wore harnesses because, and mountain climbing gear to work on, on their detectors, which are enormous things. And you go up and down them on ladders and ropes and pulleys. And and you have to wear a hard hat because somebody might drop a screwdriver on your head.
1: <laughs> now, when you talk about the idea of, of we can relate to another planet like Earth because we can picture it. and And one of the tricks for a science reporter is indeed to put these images in the mind of the reader. And I'm assuming for the other subject that has come up that is a relatively new subject, dark energy, that must be a lot of fun to try to describe what dark energy is as a reporter, since scientists can't really even describe what it is. But I also wonder if you have to come up with new ways of describing it every time you you write about it and and what some of those might be.
6: I I do have to uh, keep coming up with with new uh, verbal tricks. I mean, dark energy is easy in some ways. Dark energy is just anti-gravity. Anybody can picture that, right? You just float up to the ceiling instead of falling down. The universe seems to be made up mostly of anti-gravity, which is a surprise.
1: Do you say that weird stuff that's blowing the universe apart? Do you ever use the word weird?
6: Yeah, well, I do use the word weird a lot, although I, I, mostly I tend to confine it to uh, discussions of quantum mechanics, which everybody agrees really is weird. I mean, what was discovered is that the universe is accelerating. It's not slowing down, as you might expect, because of the gravity, the collective gravity of the cosmos. And uh, it quickly got this glib name, dark energy.
1: I just want to hear one other description for dark energy. If your editor said, okay, Dennis, you've said anti-gravity too many times, come up with something else. What would you say?
6: I'm stuck. I can't think of anything. I've, (laughs) I've had the guy throwing his car keys in the air and having them go up and stick to the ceiling. Uh.
1: What that says is the power of analogy, and it's one that writers have to use all the time, and especially a science writer, where you're trying to get these these weird or these complex concepts across to the public that even boggle the mind of the scientists that are working on them. So you use analogies.
6: I, I do, and I... I mean, one of the things in my field, I don't know if it's true in all, science writing, is that you can use too many analogies and metaphors and and completely confuse people. So you have to kind of, I mean, you have to kind of stick to friendly. When you're talking about such weird stuff, it is weird stuff. It helps to kind of keep to kind of familiar homespun analogies. The car keys going to the ceiling are good because everybody knows what that is. And and, And if they hear it again, it may... Sound familiar to them and they won't feel quite as lost.
1: It also explains where all those missing car keys are. They're on the it sounds like they're on the ceiling. Yeah. This is not an original question, but I have to ask you you've covered so many different subjects. Do you have a favorite subject that you love to cover? I don't know, between black holes, dark energy, neutrinos and so forth.
6: I mean I have a. I mean black holes are a sentimental favorite because I really broke into this business thirty years ago or so. Writing about black holes, because they were they were then the strangest things in astronomy. But now there are stranger things. So black holes are almost friendly by comparison, but but they have this kind of mythic property to them.
1: I think one of the great benefits of the subjects that you do cover is that when one sees a headline about black holes or dark energy, you're compelled to read it. It has a natural draw for audiences. It has almost a you know cinemagraphic quality to it, science fiction or something.
6: Well, that's what I tell my editors. I, you know, Everybody should know about this stuff because it's your universe, right? It's your universe that's behaving like this.
1: Dennis Overby, thank you so much for talking with us.
6: It's nice to be here. Thank you.
3: Dennis Overby is a reporter for The New York Times on what's sometimes called the Cosmic Affairs Beat.
2: Albert? Albert Einstein? Yeah? I'm Dennis Overby. I write the classic physics column for The New York Times called... This is all there is. There won't be anything else. No siree. Catchy. Perhaps you read my article, Why Helium Balloons Don't Sink? I cannot say that I did. Well, I read your paper on special relativity and it's intriguing. Can I just ask you- Nein, nein, I have to get back to the patent office. Wait, wait, I'd like to write a profile of you. I think you're onto something. Nick make the interview. Your reporters can't grasp why nothing can go faster than light. Just one statement? Nine, nine. No one will probably even read it. Trat. Oh good, there's Ernest Rutherford. Dr Rutherford. Yes. Do you have a moment just wondering how that model of the atoms coming along? No when you might publish? Still trying to get it by the referees.
3: Well, maybe Einstein wouldn't have been such a good interview back then. Coming up, a variation on the brainy German's thought experiment about the state of the universe. It's big picture science.
0: So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from WIRED. Listen to What's New with WIRED wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with WIRED wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to Big Picture Science. Now, Einstein once famously imagined what it would be like to chase along a beam of light.
3: Okay, well, this gets a little abstract, so try and picture this. We'll start with something else that moves fast. Imagine chasing a bullet once it's been fired. You're riding alongside it at, say, 1,000 feet per second, and you look to your left, and there's that bullet, and it's just hanging there in the air, not moving from your point of view. But Einstein was thinking about light beams, not bullets. Right, because he suspected that light might be a little different. If you moved alongside a light beam, it wouldn't just be sitting there in the air next to you, not moving. It would be zooming away from you at the speed of light, and it wouldn't matter how fast you were chasing that beam. Why is that? Well, it's because, and Einstein realized this, the speed of light doesn't depend on the speed of the observer. It doesn't matter how fast you're going, the speed of light is always the same. And, you know, that very simple little fact has bizarre consequences for things like time and mass and even how big things are.
1: But as fast as it is, light still takes time to go from here to there, right? That's right. (laughs) Okay. And in that way, it's an important tool for astronomers in understanding the universe, particularly the early universe. Well, indeed. Indeed
3: because light takes a finite amount of time to go anywhere, we can look into the universe's very deep, deep, deep past. And that prompted astronomer Simon Steele's own thought experiment while riding the Great Western Railway.
7: We're on the main line train traveling from Oxford Station down to London Paddington, famous for its teddy bear.
1: And this journey is not unlike the journey that light takes through the universe. Now what's the parallel there?
7: Well, we could think of being on this train as, as riding a light wave from London to Oxford, and it's a bit of a, an analogy, obviously light travels 300,000 thousand kilometres per second and we're traveling at about 60 miles an hour at the moment, but, but if you think of light traveling, light is, is really an information carrier, it's carrying information from one part of the universe to another. So the information, if you like, imagine that we were standing on the platform at Paddington Station in London, and I whip out my my phone and take a digital picture. Then I climb on the train, get on the train, we ride up to Oxford, takes about an hour or so, and then we get off at Oxford, and um, somebody says, well, what does London look like? And so I take out my camera, I show this beautiful picture of Paddington Station with far too many people milling around, and uh, I say, this is what London looks like. And they say, wait a minute, that's not what London looks like now, that's what London looked like when you left an hour ago. And you say, oh yeah, that's right because it's taken some time for us to make this journey, it's taken time for us carrying this information from London to Oxford. So the picture I've taken is already a picture of London in the past. We've got a historical snapshot.
1: So using this analogy, you and I would be photons, we would be light photons traveling through space. I mean, that's the analogy with what's happening with astronomers who are gathering light of a previous time.
7: That's right. So if if we think of photons carrying information not just now from Paddington in London to Oxford, but light from a star that makes a journey through space maybe years, tens of years, thousands of years, or in the case of most distant galaxies, billions of years, When we collect that light in our telescopes, that light gives us information about those stars and galaxies, but not as they appear now, but as they appeared when that light started its journey all those years ago. So it's a historical snapshot.
1: And in fact, the only information that astronomers have about our early universe comes in the form of light in its many different uh, wavelengths. But, but it's light, that's what you're working with when you're trying to understand where we came from.
7: Light is the only way we can find out about the universe. We can't go there, we can go to the moon, we can send probes to planets, but that's just our back neighborhood. To get any information about the rest of the universe, we have to wait for light from the universe to come to us because the universe is so big.
1: To travel to us the way that we're traveling to Oxford.
7: To travel to us the way that we're traveling to Oxford, although hopefully it'll take shorter than, than 13 billion years that it takes to travel from the the, the Big Bang.
1: Now that's not a, a random number that you pick. 13.6 billion years ago, I believe. It all started with the Big Bang, and that's when the first light was produced.
7: The Big Bang, the traditional beginning of our universe, happened uh, by current estimates about 13.7 billion years ago. Then the universe was a very, very different place. It was a hot, dense, fireball, turbulent at that time. produce a lot of light and some of that light uh, has been traveling across the universe for 13.7 billion years and finally ran into our telescopes and of course what we're seeing with this this big bang light is not how the universe appears now but how it appeared when that light started off on its journey when the light took that that snapshot photo of the universe before it started its journey and that's how we're seeing it now thank you
3: for traveling with first great western Simon Steele is always on the move as a science educator at University College London.
1: Well, so much for Simon's train of thought. Simon thinks about physics, the universe, and astronomy while on a train, and in most other places he visits in his hometown of London, well, because he's interested in all of that, and he's a professional scientist. But there are many people who enjoy physics, who don't have jobs as scientists. Nonetheless, these amateurs spend a good deal of their time thinking about how the universe works.
3: Physics on the Fringe is science writer Margaret Wertheim's look at these outliers some of whom have truly quite radical ideas. But then again, the universe is a radical place. So the question is, do any of these outside-the-mainstream
1: ideas have merit? The subtitle of her book, Smoke Rings, Circlons, and Alternative Theories of Everything.
3: Margaret, what is a circlon?
5: A circlon is a ring-shaped object, which is like a little coil of spring round around into a circle. And Jim Carter, the hero of my book, believes that this is the fundamental unit that all matter is made up from.
3: So everything, including me, you, and uh, the desks in this studio here, they're all made out of these little wound-up springs that look like something you'd use to keep a ponytail in place.
5: Yes, according to Jim's theory of physics, the entire universe, everything in it, is made up of atoms, which are made up of these circlons.
3: Well, where did he get this idea? Who is this Jim Carter? Is he a physicist?
5: Jim Carter is a man who owns a trailer park and lives in a trailer park outside Seattle, and he, for the last 50 years, has been developing his own alternative theory of physics. He doesn't have any training in science, but he believes that he has found the true and final theory of physical reality.
3: Okay, so here's an alternative theory produced by a guy who does trailer park physics, but does his theory do a better job? of explaining the universe than uh, all those guys, you know, getting paid reasonable salaries to work out string theory.
5: Well, Jim would tell you that his theory does a better job. He claims that his theory can make all kinds of predictions very precisely about what happens at the subatomic scale. So, like many of the outsider physicists that I talk about in my book, he believes that he has, in fact, found the ultimate theory of the universe,
3: so, I take it you consider him sort of a Leonardo da Vinci of outsiders This is a genius uh you know just not clothed as a genius without the tweed jacket the the sheepskins on the wall and tenure somewhere
5: Yes, Jim lives in a trailer park up outside Seattle and he has spent his life being a gold miner and an abalone diver, and he does things like dig secret caves in the cliffs outside of his house and he you know he's a working man. But he spends his leisure time dreaming up alternative theories of physics and he also does remarkable diagrams and computer animations of his theories to illustrate them. He self publishes books and all of it's, you know, very, very lavishly illustrated and graphically amazing. And I think of him as being the Leonardo of outside of physics.
3: Well you mentioned, Margaret, that he self publishes this work. Now Anyone familiar with the way conventional science is done? I hate to use that adjective, conventional, because science should never be conventional, but perhaps that's the right term here. Knows that if you have a, a new idea, a new theory that you think is better than the existing paradigm, you submit it to a refereed journal. Jim Carter isn't doing that with his Circlon theory.
5: No, it has to be said that Jim lives in a world unblemished by peer review. He has worked on his own for 50 years. He's never got any feedback from any professional physicist. I'm the only person trained in physics who's ever read his theories. And, yes, he has done it all on his own without feeling the need to have the validation of science journals or people with PhDs.
3: I have to say that I personally get work from outsiders just about every week, and very often they're the purported theories of everything. Sometimes that's the first thing on the top of the page, but they seldom involve any complex math, nothing more than seventh grade algebra. And frankly, I haven't the time or even the inclination to go through all this stuff. Uh, Am am I missing something?
5: Well, you're completely right that most professional physicists, of any stature, certainly anyone with a public name, gets this stuff all the time and most of it just goes straight from the mail room into the bin. I have been keeping a collection of it because it intrigued me. What I wanted to understand was why these people doing it. Like you, you know, all of the ones that I get, I see, you know, it, it's it's about high school level mathematics. And I haven't met any outsider physicist who I believe is the new Newton of our time or the new Einstein. But that's not what fascinates me about it. What I'm really fascinated about is why are people doing this?
3: And why are they doing it? I mean, is it just their hobbies? It's sort of like doing crossword puzzles, but they're doing, you know, physics.
5: There's an element of that, but I think it runs much more deeply than that. I think what's really going on here is that these people... Basically, look at the theories from the inside, things like string theories, things like hyperspace theories, even general relativity and quantum mechanics. And they say, I can't understand that. It doesn't make sense to me. These people are invoking these what appear to be magical things that I can't see or comprehend, like subatomic multidimensional strings. Or the uncertainty principle says that things can be particles and waves simultaneously. This just seems to me to be utter nonsense. And I believe that nature speaks a language that the common man ought to be able to understand and that ought to literally be commonsensical.
3: Well, what I experience is very often these people will occasionally, they'll call me up to discuss their theories. Yes. And, and, you know, when I express a a certain degree of skepticism or I, uh, to be honest, sort of put them off by saying, look, you know, get it published and then I'll read it. (laughs) And and then they'll they'll come back and say, but where should I get this published? They have no experience with that, and that would be very difficult for them to do. And they will appeal to the fact that in the past – there have been plenty of ideas in science that were, if you will, fringe ideas when they were proposed that turned out to be right. I mean, special relativity or dark energy. I mean, all these things were, you know, kind of bonkers when people first proposed yes. them, and they were right. And so they say, look, you know, that you guys messed up on that. You know, take a look at what I'm doing. Uh, that's very hard to do, though.
5: Yes, I mean, this is exactly the pattern. But I'd like to raise the question of, what is it that they're actually rebelling against? Because in my view, what's important about this subject is that they believe that physics has been, in a sense, captured by some kind of elite group who speak this very abstract, highly technical mathematics that very few people can understand. And they believe that they've, as it were, hijack the discussion about reality in this very arcane language that's really for a private elite. And what they're claiming is that physics ought to be something that is accessible to the ordinary person, that nature does operate in a way that ought to be comprehensible to a thoughtful person who doesn't have a PhD. Now, that's an interesting claim, whether or not we agree with it.
3: Do you have some sort of discriminant, Margaret, some sort of line that you can draw? between novel, legitimate scientific ideas and, and the wacky fringe ones? I mean, you know, is, is, is there some way of deciding what bucket to throw these into?
5: I think Seth, that when you get an outside of physics theory, you can tell the minute you see it you know, just simply by the way it's laid out on the page, simply by the language that the people use, they'll use generally a heavy use of exclamation points and capital letters. As you say, there'll be, you know, high school algebra, there'll be no sophisticated mathematics. So almost always you can tell immediately you see an outside of theory that it is one.
3: It's a case in which you can actually judge the book by its cover.
5: You can, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one thing I was going to say is learning to speak and write academic physics is as complicated and sophisticated as learning to speak and write ancient Chinese. It is, physics is couched in mathematics for very good reasons, and there's a very, very powerful language that has developed to describe the physical universe. And it works, you know, we have quantum mechanics which gives us microchips and lasers. And the question here is really, how are we going to deal with the fact that our picture of the universe from physics has become so complicated that it is literally alienating to many ordinary people.
3: Well, Margaret Wertheim, thank you so much for talking to me.
5: Thank you, Seth. It's been a pleasure.
1: Margaret Wertheim is a science writer and author of Physics on the Fringe, Smoke Rings, Circlons, and Alternative Theories of Everything. Well, Seth, have you ever had a theory of the universe in your career as an astronomer? Did you come up with something that was either proven accurate or not accurate? Well, I've had lots of theories.
3: (laughs) Really, Molly, uh, of course, and, and also theories about very specific things, and some of those actually were borne out by the data. Can you throw out one of your theories that you've come up with? Yes, well, the scientific community has thrown most of them out. Actually, I, for a long time, thought that most galaxies seemed to be kind of warped. They they were sort of like with bent hat brims in their outer regions because there was some evidence for this. As it turned out, for a long time, that turned out not to be such an interesting idea. But uh, with more time, it turns out that it
1: was all right. It was correct, in fact. Not very important, but interesting. Wait, you're saying that you had this idea, and then they thought it wasn't interesting, and then it turned out to be correct? Yeah, it is correct. (laughs) That <laughs> that the edge of galaxies are kind of warped? Spiral galaxies, many of them are warped, yes, indeed. And
3: uh, by the way, this speaks to the uh, existence of dark matter, so there's actually a reason for it, uh, an interesting reason, and something that uh, back when I did my graduate studies, which, as you know, was some time ago, uh, wasn't so obvious.
1: Yeah, I remember the invention of paper, right? It was about it, that time.
3: It preceded the invention of paper, but they could see it coming.
1: <laughs> Thanks to our not fringe production staff, but maybe occasionally warped, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and volunteer Jay Weiler.
3: Also the support from Rena Sholsky, david and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the
1: SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Cosmos. It's big, it's weird. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And when you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio for moral reasons, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.